The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Or a term many of you may know better <clears throat> in a Tibetan, one of the Tibetan lineages. But my own teaching is as non-sectarian as I can possibly make it. And that's due to my overriding concern with the normalcy of religious diversity. That it is normal for people to have quite different ideas about religion or spiritual matters or proper spiritual discipline. And that all of the verbal teachings are in any case skillful means. They are not the point. They are a skillful means to get us to see the point, which is um, not completely ever reducible to concept or to words. So that is why I try to teach um, in a very non-sectarian manner. I do it when I'm teaching uh, at the meditation center I'm affiliated with. Um, and I must say it has had a big impact on a lot of people there because most Buddhists, uh, and I think the more you go into a Mahayana or Tibetan form of Buddhism, the more it's the case. They're kind of blindsided into one lineage and they don't really spend a lot of energy looking at a wider Buddhist perspective, which I think is absolutely essential. <clears throat> I also have the same stance vis-a-vis -vis religious diversity in general. The book you referred to, um, the title is Religious Diversity, What's the Problem? <laughs> Buddhist Advice for Flourishing with Religious Diversity. And it'll be... Um, It'll be one of the first, I mean, the Dalai Lama has a very good book on religious diversity called uh, Toward a True Kinship of World Faiths. Uh, but it's not really, um, how can I say this? It's not really deeply grounded in an understanding of Western theology and the theological traditions. There's a huge Christian literature on religious diversity, and there's a very alive Buddhist-Christian dialogue, which I've been very much a part of. But it's mainly grounded in the way Christians would approach the topic of religious diversity, which I'm convinced is quite different from how Buddhists do or would or should address the topic. So this in many ways will be the first, it'll be the first book West, written by a Western Buddhist who is also deeply grounded in um, theology. I know Christian theology very well. So it'll probably um, create as much headache for me as Buddhism after patriarchy did. <laughs> and that created a lot of headaches. Believe you me, that created I, I'm very tired of being told, oh, she genderizes the Dharma. If she wouldn't talk about that stuff, we would never notice it. And our lives could be a lot easier if we never noticed the extent of uh, male dominance in Buddhism. That's a very simple solution, is just ignore it. And I'm always totally amazed when Buddhists tell me, if only you would ignore that stuff. What Buddhist Dharma teacher ever tells you to ignore as the solution to things? And yet I have been told that many, many times um, by Buddhists, not by, you know, outsiders to Buddhism don't particularly care about our issues with male dominance. But I've been told that many, many times by Buddhists. So uh, I'm also happy to report that I just received a book contract from Shambhala Publications for a new book which will be titled... How Clinging to Gender Identity Subverts Enlightenment. 
And that will be the Dharma talk I give tomorrow morning as well. Uh, some of you probably know my article in Inquiring Mind, How Clinging to Gender Subverts Enlightenment. So I've added the word identity. And it's a book about, you know, be about gender identity, but the deeper problem is really how clinging to identity altogether subverts enlightenment. And in, in the, we have a principle that's very widely articulated in Mahayana Vajrayana Buddhism, which is understanding, liberating one liberates all. So once you thoroughly understand egolessness or emptiness in one instance, you should understand it in all instances. You don't have to go down the line. And because I know that this table is is impermanent and without enduring essence, I don't have to also prove that the gong is impermanent and without enduring essence. If you thoroughly understand it, it applies all across the board. So I want to make the deeper point in that book that we're really talking about clinging to identity altogether uh, is a real problem in terms of Buddhism and what Buddhism is about. Now, when I've given, I've given that talk, how clinging to gender identity subverts enlightenment, I've given it many, quite a few times. And I was very amused once. Um, this was actually at a Vipassana Center in Minneapolis where I was being introduced. And the teacher got it mixed up, and he introduced the topic as how gender subverts enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it shows that this is a Dharma teacher. He should have known that little word clinging in there was pretty important. <laughs> but it's, um, you know, there's so much, so much unwillingness even in the Buddhist world, to really cop to um, how much clinging there is to gender identity. But that's not what I'm going to talk about today. So before I get into what I'm going to talk about today, I should lay out the uh, kind of format for the day. I've got notes here on my computer. I always teach now from a computer um, because then I can keep updating my notes all the time. And, you know, this is just I know that there aren't too many Dharma teachers who teach from computer screens, but in another not too long, I'm sure there'll be a lot more. Uh, I can't sit on the cushion for very long. I had a total hip replacement in October, and doctors don't really want you to sit cross-legged at all. It doesn't hurt to sit cross-legged, but it does hurt when I try to get up and walk, so I don't do that too much, and that's one reason I couldn't possibly do it all day, so that's one reason why I asked for this table. Um, this will be reasonably informal. There are many units in the talk I want to give, and I'll stop periodically for Q&A. So we'll have Q&A throughout the day rather than at one point at the end. Though when I'm on a roll, please don't you know, try to interrupt me to ask your question. Remember it, and then I'll try to remember to pause for Q&A frequently enough. Um, Instead of taking many breaks, which tends to break the flow, I prefer if people, if you need to use the bathroom, just get up quietly and go use the bathroom, get a drink of water, whatever. Uh, But we won't have a lot of breaks because I find it disruptive to have too many breaks. We will break for lunch, of course. Uh, I'm going to take a longer break for lunch, probably an hour and a half, And I'll break for lunch sometime when it's appropriate. I'm not going to announce the time right now. And then we'll reconvene whatever it is when we break for lunch. We'll reconvene an hour and a half later. So uh, that's all clear, right? That's pretty straightforward. 
And, you know, if you get too tired in your cushions, get a chair. If you want to move from a chair down to the floor, please feel free to do that. So um, I can't remember exactly what this was titled on your flyer, but the title on my computer is uh, Some Stories About Women in the Life of the Historical Buddha. And so, you know, partly this is a program about my usual interest of women and Buddhism, but there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, because the word stories is really important in my title. Uh, I've chosen to focus on storytelling because one of the things many people don't know is that in Asian Buddhism, storytelling about the Buddha and the main characters in his life continued apace after the close of the canon. It isn't just the stories in the canon that people told and tell. The stories continued to be retold. People continued to write the texts down of stories that were being told. And actually, that enterprise is still going on. Uh, right now, there is a very, very long TV series on the life of the Buddha that's being produced in India. And it's, I think, shown weekly. Uh, I've seen a, at, at the meditation center I go to in Virginia, which is called Lotus Garden. And my teacher is Jetson Khandra Rinpoche, who is one of the few um, women who teaches, uh, teaches in English, teaches in the West. Um, very, very interesting and really quite amazing person. Her center is in Stanley, Virginia, and they get satellite TV from India. So they're always up on that TV series. I saw a couple of episodes of it last summer. It's going to be a very long series on the life of the Buddha. And it's very different from the canonical stories. I mean, it obviously follows the same outline that we're used to. But it's quite different. And a lot of additions of modern concern. In fact, one of I was just at Lotus Garden. We just had a 15-day uh, silent, I guess in this context we would call it a mindfulness retreat. We just had a 15-day silent meditation retreat there. And one of the other people who lives there who gets the TV program said that in one of the recent episodes that has been shown, the Buddha and Devadatta go together to a brothel. <laughs> now can you imagine? <laughs> and what's the point the Buddha, after the visit and talking with the women in the brothel, makes the rule that any woman can say no to a man, period, and it has to be respected, even if she's a prostitute. And he said this is a direct counter to all of the rapes that are going on in India right now. I don't know if you're aware of this, but rape has been a big problem in India in the last year. There was that very widely publicized incident of the woman who was essentially raped to death in Delhi about a year ago. So this is, I think, a very good example of the way in which storytelling continues. In a tradition that's alive, storytelling continues. And in a tradition that's alive, but one by which I mean people can identify with the characters in the basic story. People continue to retell the stories, and in the retelling of the stories, they address many issues that were not necessarily addressed in the canonical texts in the bare stories. Now, I'm convinced that a lot of Western Buddhists 
what I say. It's not very polite. It's not very nice, but I think it's true. A lot of Western Buddhists, I think, have changed religious affiliation, but they haven't changed their attitudes towards religion. <laughs> and a lot of, as a result, a lot of Western Buddhists are pretty fundamentalist because that's how, I mean, Westerners are pretty fundamentalist. Even if they're anti-religious, then they're scientific fundamentalists. <laughs> But Westerners are pretty fundamentalist. There isn't a lot of elasticity and flexibility and willingness to not know everything and curiosity about what else there is to be known. I just don't find that attitude all that alive and well in our culture. But I'm convinced that when a tradition is really alive and the story tradition is really alive, People are very willing to live within that story, to identify with the characters in the story. And when they're willing, willing to and can identify with the characters in the story, they continue to develop the stories. And that happened. Uh, it happened about the life of the Buddha. The life of the Buddha is a story that continues to be retold. We never have the complete final version of the story. But if you're a fundamentalist, that's a very frightening proposition to you because fundamentalists want the complete final version of the story. This is it, no more. We can't invent new themes on the story. But the story of the Buddha, you know, we all have our... We think it's the canonical version. It's not actually the canonical version. The story of the Buddha's life that most of us know and repeat over and over wasn't, wasn't composed until centuries after the life and death of the Buddha. I think most people don't know that, but that's the case. It wasn't the, the main story of the Buddha that we know is a Sanskrit epic from the second century AD. Uh, not, you know, and that's some hundred years after the life and death of the Buddha. There isn't much about the life of the Buddha in the early canon. Why not? Because the Buddha always downplayed himself and basically said, if you've seen the Dharma, then you've seen the Buddha. You don't need to see me as a person. What you need is to understand the Dharma. And in the early, in the early literature, the whole focus is on the Dharma, on the teachings of the Buddha. His life per se wasn't all that interesting or important. It was because he had something to teach. And we find out about the life of the Buddha mainly through stories that were told about how he gave teachings. And that, that was it. The stories that we're so familiar with, like how he left home and you know, left his, his wife and newborn son there in the bed, that wasn't in the early suttas. In the early suttas, according to one of my sources, the only story about the Buddha leaving home is that he left home and his parents were weeping that he left his weeping parents at home. It doesn't say anything about the rest of the story that we're so familiar with. But at a certain point, the story in the, in the Sanskrit epic, the Buddhacharita became, or Buddhacharita became kind of the life story of the Buddha that's pretty much accepted across the boards in most all forms of Buddhism. But in another sense, stories continued to be told and in modern periods, there's a continuing retelling of the life of the Buddha. I think one of the most beautiful and most interesting is Thich Nhat Hanh's retelling 
of the life of the Buddha, old path, white clouds. Anybody here read that? So isn't that wonderful? It's a very big book. One of my friends who, who read it on my advice said, gee, it's really a doorstopper. And it's a, it's a very easy read. It's just so easy to read. And, um, you know, people at Lotus Garden have started reading that book a lot now. So to show you how fundamentalist many Western Buddhists are, one of the other Lopanzaracharyas was teaching from that book one night at one of our, our taught teaching retreats. There was a student in the back row who kept putting up his hand and asking the question, but is that what really happened? <laughs> this was Thich Nhat Hanh's 20th century version of the life of the Buddha. And if you know anything about Thich Nhat Hanh, he's going to get a lot of concern with social justice into the narrative of the Buddha. So one of the things he has in his book is that Yasodhara, the Buddha's wife, is very interested in the status of poor people in Kapilavastu. And so she works with poor people. She works in relief organizations. And this student was like, his dominant question is both, was that what really happened? And the fact of the matter is nobody knows. Nobody recorded much about the life of the Buddha. Nevertheless, the stories are so interesting. And there's, there's, you know, I think in a live tradition, people want to inhabit the story to see themselves in the story, and therefore we retell the story. Uh, there's another very modern version of the Buddha's life, which I highly recommend. It's very short, um, and it's a so-called children's book. It's called The Cat Who Went to Heaven. Anybody here read that? See, I, I teach this all the time. My people haven't read The Cat Who Went to Heaven. It's a children's book, so-called with really wonderful illustrations. And like many good children's books, there's um, a lot in it that you could learn. So the other thing about story that I want to emphasize is that for many people in many religious tradition, story is at least as important as propositional teachings. Um, and they're much easier for most people to understand. You know, it can be difficult to understand even the Four Noble Truths and the Three Marks. But when you tell the story that even the Buddha had to die because everything is impermanent, that makes that theoretical teaching a lot more, um, a lot more real, a lot more in your face. So religions, um, you know, religions always rely on story. A lot of people who are more philosophically inclined don't like story. They regard it as lightweight compared to philosophy or proposition. But religions always rely on story. And I think a lot of the problem that we have in our culture is that since the European Enlightenment, we have lost an appreciation for the elasticity and flexibility of stories because we appreciate empirical fact, what is true as an empirical fact, something you know you can touch. That's what's true. And so then we ask about stories, are they true? And about stories we mean, did they empirically happen? Could you have recorded them with a camcorder? Could you make a documentary out of it? 
most religious stories are not empirical facts in any religious tradition. The empirical facts about the great figures are usually not very well known. They weren't recorded at the time. The stories grew up later. The stories continued to change. And that doesn't matter for the relevance of the story. So in, in, the, in the study of religion, in the study of religious texts, religious stories, how religions work, we make a very strong distinction between uh, history, which is an empirical discipline. What really happened is the question for history. What really happened? What could have been recorded by a camcorder and make its way into a documentary? And then there's story. And stories, to be religiously relevant, don't have to be empirically verifiable. In fact, they usually aren't. The resurrection of Jesus, that's empirically verifiable. Nevertheless, has any story had more potency? And then, of course, post-European enlightenment, we come along and with our, our total prestige on empirical facts, we totally misunderstand stories. So I'm, you know, this is a program supposedly about women, stories about women and the life of the Buddha, but there's a much larger Dharma point to this program, which is to start to understand the religious relevance, the spiritual relevance of stories, and to appreciate story beyond the question of, but did it happen that way? Sort of an irrelevant question to appreciate story and what the stories are telling us about our central existential questions and how those stories continue to change in a living tradition. Always developing, always changing. So uh, I think that's a point where we could stop for a little bit of discussion because in many ways... That's the Dharma point headline of this weekend, is to, to learn more about the function of story in any religious tradition and to appreciate the difference between story and history. And as I've said, in terms of empirical fact, we know very little about the historical Buddha. We don't even know his dates for sure. We don't even know that. The canonical texts do not record much about the life of the Buddha. And we don't know in the canonical texts, in the Pali Suttas, we don't know what's early and late. It's impossible to figure out what is the absolute bottom line. We don't know for sure what are the words of the Buddha and what are the words that, that as the stories continued to develop, people were sure he had said. And, of course, in the Mahayana Sutras, which any decent historian will tell you the Mahayana Sutras are not empirical history, but what people truly believed the Buddha had said continued to be recorded in the Mahayana Sutras, and it goes on and on like that. So I'm going to honor my statement that I would do some time for Q&A, and which one of you had your hand up first? I appreciate the distinction between the, the history and the story. 
And what came to mind while you were describing the way the stories continue to evolve is that one thing I appreciate about story is, is of course, the flexibility and the ability to adapt to say things about what's happening in society right now. And another part of my mind appreciates that stories can have an archetypal quality to them that somehow transcends differing cultures to some degree because it taps somehow into human psychology or something Mm -hmm. which will be constant. Can you speak a little bit about that distinction of creating stories that are both archetypal and immediately relevant? Uh, that's a, no, that's a good question. I'm not, I'm not too um, myself too oriented to a Jungian framework, which is where this whole discourse about archetypes comes out. I'm more attuned as a scholar and as a practitioner, but especially as a scholar, to the real differences that there are between religions. Uh, I don't. I think the the slogan that all religions are basically the same is just not true. And one of the challenges is to live with diversity, to learn how to be okay with the fact that people really are quite different from one another. I think that's a much deeper challenge than to somehow reduce everything to sameness. Um, I don't think you can... I think there's a way in which stories tell themselves that you can't consciously create a deeply archetypal story by saying, what would a deeply archetypal story be or say? That you have to be very contemplative. And by contemplative, I always mean much more much more curious and open and flexible. What's going to happen next? And then a story will tell itself. And some people become the conduits for those stories to tell themselves. And, you know, that's the way, that's the way the great philosophical texts of a tradition also develop. People immerse themselves deeply in the spiritual disciplines of the tradition. They are open to insight and one day you wake up and start writing and things that you never thought you were going to know come out. So that's how, that's how I think that the archetypal story tells itself. I don't think it can be consciously created by somebody who has an agenda. And quite frankly, that's the way most of my insights about gender and Buddhism have developed, is as a very receptive the author needs to be very receptive to insight rather than manipulating uh, what am I going to say next? How can I, you know, how can I, how can I further my agenda? That tends not to work too well. Right. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that, that distinction. And I agree with the way that comes out. Um, I, I just find that in reading the story of the Buddha or the story of Jesus for that matter, um, there are elements of it that speak to me nonetheless. And yeah. I think you're right. They've been created uh, non-consciously. Yeah. Non-consciously. Well, one of the things that, you know, Joseph Campbell and other people who, work, who have worked on myth, which myth does not mean, in, in, myth is a very interesting word, but one of the prime meanings of myth is that it's a sacred narrative. It's not a true narrative. It's a sacred narrative. If you mean by true, empirically verifiable, no myth is empirically verifiable. And yet their sacredness um, speaks to people. And that's why people are, are 
drawn to them, even when we're materialists and rationalists, we're still drawn to myths. But in, in the sacred stories about the great religious founders, one of the most common motifs is that they always have an extraordinary conception and birth, which both Jesus and Buddha do. And what's interesting about that narrative is that it's always a narrative that comes into, that becomes to be believed in much, much later. I mean, my God, if this baby stood up and took seven steps, <laughs> you'd know immediately this kid is not, this kid is something different. And only an idiot would deny that this person was different, or special, unique. And I think in many ways, you know, a lot of the narratives about the Buddha present him as knowing, even from conception, that he was going to become the Buddha. That spoils the story. That totally spoils the story. I mean, when, when he, if, if this, insofar as the story about his leave-taking is true, if he's looking at his wife and baby and he knows he's going to be the Buddha, that takes all the, all the poignancy out of that moment. That, you know, he didn't know. He didn't know whether, he didn't know what was going to happen. How, if, he, if he knew what was going to happen, the, the story becomes irrelevant and pointless. The poignancy of the story is that he didn't know what was going to, just like none of us know for sure what's going to happen when we take a chance. We don't know for sure what's going to happen. We don't know if we, um, you know, act on our insight to follow Buddhist practice, what it's going to do to our lives, right? It can mean you have career changes you never thought you'd have. It can mean you have relationship changes. You, it, it affects your uh, politics. If you really take that insight to follow Buddhist practice seriously, you don't know what you're getting into. And that's, I think, very important. I think that for the, for the story of the Buddha, if we present the Buddha as having foreknowledge about what his life was going to be like, and that's why he had to leave home, it actually makes Buddhism a theistic religion. It takes, the Buddha has to be fully human, for Buddhism to be non-theistic. As soon as we start turning Buddha into somebody who had foreknowledge about what his life was going to be, which even Theravadins do, to say nothing of Mahayanists, we have spoiled the non-theism of Buddhism. I think it's very, very important that we regard Siddhartha as genuinely a human being. And that even after his, you know, even after his enlightenment experience, he was a human being. People didn't automatically all fall at his feet. He had a lot of opposition. A lot of people thought, oh, what a terrible person this is, encouraging young men to abandon their families. That was a very common reaction to what he was doing in India at the day. Terrible person. Really socially irresponsible, encouraging young men to abandon their families. What decent person would do that? Did you? Thank you. Um, 
So about stories, I've, I've spent the last semester studying the Diga Nikaya and some of the beautiful literature in that. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on lenses that we can approach some of these stories to soak the most wisdom out of them. Like what are some of the angles? That- I, I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of stories that on, on, on first reading seem preposterous. And I think that uh, it takes a lot of contemplation. Contemplation, uh, as I define it, is uh, in, in the Tibetan tradition, we talk about the three prajna principles, which are hearing. So first you do what you did. You hear, you read the texts, then you contemplate them. And that's a very slow process that has to be completely open-ended. And it has to be receptive, where, you, as I said earlier, let wisdom arise. But it's slow. You do not get fast results, especially when you're new to the literature and new to the conventions of the literature. So just keep on, just keep on working with it and being open to all sorts of crazy ideas which will gradually sort themselves out as which ones are worth following and which ones you sort of say, yeah, I don't think so. There's a, a series of phases in uh, Pali literature about this. It's Suttamayapanya, Chintamayapanya, and Bhavavanayapanya. So, so three levels of wisdom. So it goes... See, one of the things that I did quite some time ago because I got tired of... Um, Mahayana and Vajrayana chauvinism, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and read the Pali sources for myself. And I found more and more and more things that people claim to be Mahayana innovations are not, are not at all. There are Mahayana innovations, but a lot of the things people claim are, are not. They're definitely in the early layers of the tradition. So that's what I've been teaching a lot in a Tibetan context um, and part of my Buddhist non-sectarianism, quite frankly, is to encourage Mahayanas to read Pali literature and for Theravadins, or whatever you call them, to start reading Mahayana literature seriously instead of just rejecting it as not the word of the Buddha and therefore we won't read it. Because that's, you know, that's just as sectarian as to refuse to read the Pali scriptures because... We've surpassed them. They're both highly sectarian points of view. And part of them, really what I'm trying to get across in a lot of my teaching these days, is that Buddhist sectarianism is out of date and inappropriate in the Western world in which all forms of Buddhism exist side by side. And we could easily know about other forms of Buddhism I have gone so far as it's in one of my tricycle articles to write that I don't think anybody should be able to take the teaching seat if they don't have some serious knowledge of the wide range of schools of Buddhism and if they're only going to be teaching their own little lineage. I just I think that that's one of the key issues for Western Buddhism. Please take, take a seat. I know you came in a little late, but find a place to... Uh, who's next? I think they're using the microphone for recording purposes. <laughs> um, just to follow up on her question, um, I'm interested in not necessarily so much the lenses through which to see the stories, but to, to see the stories 
through the lenses through which they were made. Um, I, and that's why I really appreciate your your broader um, you know focus on on all of the religious um, perspectives because um, I guess the 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 message to me is to hold the stories lightly. I don't know enough about that culture. The story what? To hold the, the, for me to hold them more lightly um, and to have more of an understanding of the history or the um, culture from which they came or, mm-hmm. the, you know, who is the storyteller. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I guess um, my question is um, with regards to, um, you know, whether a story is true or not. I mean, even to me, when I think about camcorders recording, even those could be told the documentaries from perspectives. Right. Because our notions of empirical history do change over time. That that is definitely the case. When I went to graduate school, uh, there was maybe one sentence about women and Buddhism in the textbooks on Buddhism. Due to the second wave of feminism, there are now huge libraries about women in Buddhism. So our notions of what is empirical history also change. Um, and this, you know, we can talk about stories and how stories change, but history is also important insofar as we can pin down history. Uh, and the course I teach at Lotus Garden every summer is called Buddhist History for Buddhist Practitioners. It's not Buddhist stories. Sometimes they teach the history of how stories develop, but it's Buddhist history for Buddhist practitioners, and it was um, a totally traumatic event for the students at this meditation center when I told them that the Heart Sutra is not a historical narrative. They were devastated. I mean, it was, it was very interesting. But here, um, Buddhism has, I think, a way of dealing with the question you're asking, which is to say very clearly recognized that everything arises due to interdependence. The interdependent causes and conditions explain how things arise. And then when those causes and conditions fall apart, conditions change, which means many things, but it means that all of our social forms are human-created. They're a result of cultural causes and conditions And we're not stuck. Patriarchy, racism, those are not eternal conditions. Those are created by human beings due to certain causes and conditions, and we can can change them. So um, it's important to know the causes and conditions that led to the arising of Mahayana. It wasn't just people being arbitrarily ignoring the words of the Buddha. Historical causes and conditions had changed. And in response to those changing causes and conditions, people started to say new things that the historical Buddha hadn't said. But there's nothing devious about it or nothing wrong about it. It's just, it's just due to Pratitya Samutpada. What's this Pali for that? Pratitya Samutpada. I always go back to Sanskrit when I come to the terminology. But, you know, things change because of interdependence. And interdependence is, you know, the bottom line. If there is a bottom line of Buddhist teachings, it's interdependence, which in Mahayana is called emptiness, and in Vajrayana it's called non-duality, but they're the same thing. There's, there's no difference whatsoever. 
between interdependence, emptiness, and non-duality. So um, I think it's very important for Buddhists to understand the Pratitya Samutpada that led to the Buddha, that led to changes in Buddhism, that lead to our current Buddhist situation. And then you have this open, non-dogmatic attitude that I think is what the Buddha taught in the Kalama Sutta when he said, you know, don't take anything on authority, check it out. Um, how can you have a Buddhism where you're not checking it out? How can you therefore not check out Buddhist patriarchy and male dominance and ask whether that's a, a good way to go about things? Other, yes, in front of you. Uh, a while back I read uh, on the internet by a Pierland, um, I don't know if it's a scholar, but teacher, that the reason the Mahayana arose was because the early Theravadins were, had become so um, uh, I can't think of the word, but involved in the teachings per se uh, that they had totally forgotten the importance of the life of the Buddha <laughs> and that at the time it was the Buddha himself that was so inspirational. That as he, you know, just as he walked or went about, the radiance and his demeanor and etc. were what was so important. And this whole notion of the Buddha walking around you know, emanating radiance is... Who among us walks around emanating radiance? <laughs> If the Buddha was truly human, no, the, the origins, I'm, I'm giving you some background on interdependence and how and why things change throughout Buddhist history. Origins of Mahayana is a very complex topic, and that's a different program. I can teach that program, but it's a different program than what you brought me here to teach. So I'm not going to go into uh, anything about what really are the interdependent causes and conditions that led to the arising of the Mahayana. Um, and, you know, any theory that any of you want to bring forth today, I'm not going to entertain because it's not the subject of this particular program. But any time we start talking about things, let's try to... I think this is worth thinking about what does it mean to understand that the Buddha was a human being and not a god? Which is what he said about himself. And any time we get into anything too supernatural about the Buddha, let's question, is that really where we want to go? Um, I have a feeling that, when I, that, that this, your talk is about what I'm going to ask, but um, uh, what is the value of story? And the reason I ask is... Um, um, I guess uh, my education taught me to devalue story. Mm -hmm. um, as an artist, I have great um, respect for the whole world of art, includes story. Um, but within me, there's, um, there's, there's ambivalence about that. And I'm not sure, um, in this context, uh, what the value of story is. Well, it's as I said, people live through story as much as they live through proposition, if not more. 
And, you know, if you look at Christianity, the great propositional creed is actually a story. The Apostles' Creed is a story. Um, We tell ourselves who we are by the stories we tell about ourselves, and every culture does that. American exceptionalism is about the story of people who left Europe and, you know, came here and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of American, what I consider to be political extremism, is based on people's stories about who it, what it is, to, how America got to be America, and how it's different from everybody else. So people, in fact, do live by story. Um, we tell ourselves who we are through the stories we tell about where we came from and who our ancestors were. The problem is that with the European Enlightenment, people came to be much more empirical, much more empirically oriented than any other culture is. And they came to believe in a universal scientific rationality, which devalues story. That mentality devalues story, because stories are not empirically true usually. How much of our American mythos is actually true? The pilgrims didn't come here for religious freedom. They came here to get away from religions they disagreed with, and then they came here and founded their own theocracies and kicked everybody out of the colony who didn't belong to their church. And yet people are always ranting on about religious freedom and religious freedom being a founding principle of this country. It wasn't a founding principle. It wasn't until some of the, uh, like Thomas Jefferson and others, who really wrote about the wall of separation between church and state, that freedom of religion became that dominant, a reason or principle of American life. So the disvalue of stories is something anybody who goes through a modern university education is going to be taught to disvalue story or to distrust story. That's part of our Pratitya Samutada situation, part of the cultural situation we've inherited. But, um, you know, I think that we mislead ourselves if we think we can live without stories. Why else would we read novels? Why else would we watch TV serials? Downton Abbey is so popular. We watch those stories, read those stories, because we identify with the people in them. We know who we are by identifying with people in stories. Um, The Puritans, you know, thought you should never read novels because novels weren't true. It was a waste of time to read a novel because it's just made up. And in many ways, I was sort of taught that kind of thing, too. When you, when you have that, when you have that value, you have to throw out about 98% of the world's literature. <laughs> and the world life is, you know, much, much poorer. So the value of stories is that they're much more complete and emotionally and psychologically nuanced portrait of who we are as human beings than a propositional creed could ever be. Than even the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths great proposition. But um, you know.
without the story of how it was first taught. And you go to you actually go to to Sarnath where the Buddha's first sermon was given, and there's a little place where they have a representation, a visual representation. Figures are about one and a half times life size of the Buddha teaching and the five disciples sitting there. That story is just as important as the content of the Four Noble Truths in many ways. And the fact that immediately one of the students got it. That gives us a clue. These teachings are trustworthy. If somebody can get it that fast... So I, I may be uh, uh, shifting the ground here a little bit, but to take this, this closer to home then, um, some of my teaching, what I've been taught, some of my practice in, in, in Buddhism is to get out of the story and, and, and see what your real experience is, to, to leave the story behind, forget the story. Well, that's, um, if you want to take the, if you're going to take the story as fact, that's good advice. If you're going to take the story as clue, there's a big difference between whether you take a story as fact, which is, I think, not a very good way to relate to a story, and whether you're going to take it as a clue. And if you take it as a clue, then you'll be curious and you'll go further. And I think that's the same thing as leaving the story behind. I think leaving the story behind, what we're leaving behind is this is the fundamentalism, the literalism, the concern of was the Buddha's wife really interested in social welfare and couple of us do? It doesn't matter. There's also a level at which the story doesn't matter. But for the story not to matter, you have to have a lot of flexibility and curiosity, and then you're open to different stories. I don't think we can live without story at the same time as we have to be very flexible and open. So one more, and then I'm going to go back to making some comments. They're recording this. I'm so used to this because at Lotus Garden, there's always this passing the microphone back and forth. But this is being recorded, and it'll be on the web, so it's important that every question be recorded. So we're talking a lot about the stories we hear and not those that we generate. So when I'm mentioning letting go of the story, I kind of relate to that more with the internal narrative and identity and self-making, that activity of story, of making sense, with usually the protagonist or the hero being myself. (laughs) (laughs) But um, So that kind of activity of self-making engaging in that yep. in that narrative and taking as fact and as as real or edified very good point very very good point that if the story is how uh, the story if i'm the central hero of the story that's a problem but i'm not talking about those stories i'm talking about you know thousands of buddhist stories and how being curious about we, how those stories could illumine our own lives, that's a totally different way of living, yeah. of taking the relevance of story. Yeah. But that's a very, very good point, because until we have some real 
practicing practitioner's grasp of egolessness, we always make ourselves the central character. And that's not at all what I'm talking about. Yeah, and that's all I wanted to kind of make that distinction. Um, The question that I had about the stories, though, however, is not because of identifying with the gender, but then stories told over time where uh, certain voices, perspectives are lost. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting topic, how, for me, how, and that I'm sure will unfold. Yeah, Yeah, that's where we're going, is how stories that most Western Buddhists never hear, partly because they just haven't been translated until very recently, partly because Western society is actually very male-dominated, perhaps more so than Asian Buddhist societies, I think, in some ways. Um, the stories, you know, have dropped out of our knowledge. Uh, if we had been born in certain Asian cultures, we probably would have heard these stories that I'm going to tell today. Um, so there's that stories come into existence, stories drop out of knowledge, different cultures have different stories. Um, there's always more we can, can learn. So with that as a transition, I'm going to talk a little bit about the stories we're going to be um, working on today, many of the stories we're going to be working on today. I've already said that the story of the Buddha that we know wasn't really told much or at all during the lifetime of the Buddha or for quite a while thereafter. But those, the story about the life of the Buddha, we got to have a standard form of it. But part of the development of the story about the Buddha and also of his early disciples, which is his wife and his mother and his foster mother, are the ones we're mainly going to be talking about today. Um, those, the, those stories, at a certain point in Buddhist history, a whole different level of stories about the Buddha and the people close to him came to be told. And those were the stories of the former lives of those people. Uh, the stories about the Buddha's former lives are called the Jataka tales, which is J-A-T-A-K-A. And the stories about the former lives of the Buddha's disciples, his wife, his mother, and all those people were called apadanas or avadanas. There's a whole class of literature. Uh, A-P-A or A-V-A-D-A-N-A. D-A-N-A. And these, the Jatakas and the Apadanas, are both parts of the Pali Canon. They're part of the fifth Nikaya, the Kudaka Nikaya, which contains a lot of material that's a lot later than the four earlier Nikayas, but not all of the material in the Kudaka Nikaya is late. But the, the Jatakas and the Apadanas are definitely a new layer of storytelling that people uh, engaged in. And the question is, why did they become so interested in the former lives of the Buddha and the former lives of his disciples? Why did this whole genre of literature develop? 
and partly as a way of collecting a lot of folklore and putting it all together, because most of the stories, especially the Jataka stories, are old folk Indian folklore retold to be about former lives of the Buddhas. They're like Aesop's fables. They're, they're morality tales, pious tales, retold about, quote, former lives of the Buddha. But interestingly, one of the chief reasons why this literature became so popular is that Buddhism was becoming a popular religion. During the reign of Ashoka, and the reign of Emperor Ashoka is 268 to 232 before the Common Era. You all know about Ashoka? Ashoka was this um, emperor of India, the first person to really politically unify India, which has hardly ever been politically unified, by the way. And um, he became a Buddhist after his successful uh, conquest of most of India, But when he became a Buddhist, he became a pretty serious Buddhist. And uh, because of his patronage of Buddhist institutions and Buddhist monks, Buddhism became, it was really under his era, in his reign, that Buddhism was becoming a popular religion. Early Buddhism was mainly a countercultural religion. It was for serious world-renouncing practitioners. And yes, there is a talk about the fourfold sangha, monks, nuns, lay men, lay women. Nevertheless, in the early material, there's a very strong bias towards monks and nuns, towards world-renouncers. But, you know, for Buddhism, if a religion's going to become a widespread popular religion, you have to have forms of the religion that appeal to people who are not so serious about how they're going to take this religion. That, by the way, is one of the key problems right now for Western Buddhism. And Western Buddhism becoming more than an upper-middle-class, educated, white phenomenon, which is, you know, what it kind of is right now. It's a real problem, because popular religion is pretty unappetizing to intellectuals, usually. Right? I mean, that's one of our problems with a lot of the religion we've left behind. It's just too crude for us. But Buddhism was becoming a popular religion. Things had to develop that would be relevant for people who were not going to renounce the world, not going to leave their careers and families, not going to be full-time Buddhists, and yet had an allegiance to Buddhism. And one of the things that that people say, and I think this is absolutely correct, is that um, as Buddhism became a more popular religion, lay Buddhists could not identify with the arhats and the Buddha. They could not, they simply couldn't see themselves as becoming enlightened in this life. They simply couldn't imagine that story is about me because I have no intention of leaving my family behind. I have no intention of reneging on my responsibilities to that extent. And you know, you have to understand that that leaving your family and your career behind for a spiritual pursuit um, was 
not universally approved of in India of the Buddha's day. In fact, many, many people disapproved of it. There's one text which talks about the Buddha and says, warns people that when he comes through town, he takes all your sons, and after he's left, it's your town has become like a wheat field after a hailstorm. That's how destructive he is. That's very strong, isn't it? That, and I think it's very hard for us, just reading the pious stories about the Buddha and his disciples, it's very hard for us to imagine, you know, that people would have been going after their sons the way some contemporary parents, you know, go after their kids to deprogram them when they've been abducted by one of these new religions, these cults from the East. I think that there was a lot of feeling that was very similar in the Buddha's day about what he and the other Shramanera movements were doing. Um, they were not universally approved of. But then Buddhism was becoming a much more popular religion. A lot of people were saying, yeah, that, that is, you know, that does appeal to me. But they couldn't identify with the Arhats or the Buddha. What they could identify with were stories about the former lives. They could identify with stories about the former lives of the Buddha and the Arhat disciples. And that's one reason why these stories became so popular. I think that's a very uh, interesting point because it shows us how stories change and develop through the centuries. So in the case of the, of the women close to the Buddha, stories about their former lives became very important to, uh, and the, the men as well, stories about their former lives became very important, but also aspects of their lives that had not been picked up in the early stories. And for the wife of the Buddha, for Yashodara, the stories that were told about her post-canonical one of the things people were most interested in is what were her feelings? How did she take her abandonment? What did she, how, did she, um, how did she handle this? And very different stories about her um, developed. That's part of what I'm going to talk about today. And also filling out the stories of these women um, towards the end of their lives, stories about their deaths became as important as the story about the Buddha's death. You know, we have the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which you must have studied, and I just gave a long talk on that at the Zen Center. But interestingly, stories about the last days and the Parinirvanas of both the Buddha's wife and foster mother became as developed, as elaborate, and as interesting and important as the stories about the Buddha's last days. So people are filling in the stories and making more stories about them. Um, and that's in response to Buddhism becoming a more widespread, popular religion. People needing more than just the bare bones 
stories in the Nikayas and the fact that, of course, religions always... One of my slogans is that the only unchanging religion is a dead religion. So, you know, there's a lot of bias in our society about religion should never change. When I was being brought up, one of the things that was always hammered into me was that any religion that changes is bad. And um, this was during the time of Vatican II when, of course, the Catholic Church changed a great deal, and that was one of the proofs that Catholics had it all wrong, was because they were willing to let things change, and we don't. So I used to tell my university students, if you want to practice an unchanging religion, find a dead one and practice it. But probably as you change throughout the course of your life, that religion will change too. Um, so Buddhism has a very sensible proposition that everything changes, right? It's called, it's called anitya, anicca, everything changes. So why would Buddhism not change? Why would, Buddhist, why would Buddhist teachings not change given that everything changes and given that teachings are only ever skillful means, not the absolute truth? Buddhist teachings are pointers meant to point us in the right direction, not as, you know, in the raft parable. It's a raft to get across the shore. And if you carry it around on your back afterwards it's kind of silly kind of doesn't make the make the case they're they're good teachings they're very valid teachings but they're they're things to get us across the shore so of course um, you know buddhism continued to change it changed a lot as it became a popular religion and one of the ways it changed as it became a popular religion was to tell new stories about the Buddha and his immediate disciples and his family members. And the stories that were told about his family members and his immediate disciples were in many ways stories that seemed a lot more realistic to a lot more people than the uh, canonical stories. Now, this point I want to make, if we do sometime, a lot of the things that happened under Ashoka as Buddhism became a popular religion, I think were also instrumental in the eventual emergence of Mahayana Buddhism, that um, a lot of things were set in motion as Buddhism became more popular. That eventually led to the development of Mahayana but if Buddhism hadn't changed during the empire of Ashoka, during the reign of Ashoka, and become a popular religion, it probably wouldn't have survived. Or if it had survived, it would have been a very small religion like Jainism. It wouldn't have spread all over Asia, and it wouldn't be available to us today in all probability. So um, that's a kind of a minor point, but it's a stopping point in my narratives. We're gonna, uh, I'm going to go on and talk about some other things so if there's any questions about popular religion and the needs of popular religion, this would be a good time to bring those up. curious how you see the balancing between the needs of popular religion and the needs of um, those who are 
a little bit more nuanced in their inclinations and philosophical? Yeah, that's a that's a very very difficult question. Um, because you know, without a popular base, a religion can't survive. That's where the money comes from. And without an elite level of practitioners, um, it you know it uh, doesn't have much depth. And I think that on this particular point, people need to just be more tolerant and understanding that we're not all cut from the same mold. That what's satisfying to me and works for me may not be satisfying at all for you. And, you know, for those of us who uh, have a more hardcore approach to spiritual life, to not be so scornful of people who don't have a terribly sophisticated understanding of religion and for those who on the popular level to be much less fundamentalist and certain that there's only one way. You know, both sides are kind of prone to the slogan, there's one way and I've got it. <laughs> and, um, you know, it just doesn't work very well. Buddhism, you know, therefore, um, Buddhism has in many ways worked with that problem through the twofold um, accumulation of merit and accumulation of wisdom. That uh, accumulation of merit does not lead to enlightenment, but it leads to a life in which the accumulation of wisdom is much more feasible and much more possible. But there's a statement, I'm sure you that the Theravadans do it as well, the person who provides the economic basis for someone to do a long retreat receives as much merit as the person who did the retreat. Now, the person who does the retreat may also uh, accumulate wisdom in the process, but it's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed that just by doing a long retreat you're going to accumulate wisdom. That's, you know, up to you. But this principle, the, the virtue of generosity, which is so deep in Buddhism, which anyone can do, means that anyone can have a respected and a valued place in the Buddhist world, whether or not you care about studying Madhyamaka or Abhidharma, Abhidhamma, or whether you want to do long retreats. You still have a respected, valuable place in the Buddhist world. And that's one of the things about Buddhism that I think is perhaps you know, more better developed than in many other religious traditions where there's a genuine appreciation for the importance of the accumulation of merit and um, the recognition that there are varied, there need to be varied lifestyles within Buddhism. That's what the monastic lay division is all about, that there need to be different lifestyles. Not everybody can be a monastic and not everybody can be a lay person. You know, there are some religions in which only the lay life is valued, Judaism, Islam, period. Everybody's lay person. Um, and then there are religions that have a monastic dimension as well. I think that one of the problems within Buddhism, and especially in Western Buddhism, is not recognizing a need for generous lay patrons who aren't hardcore practitioners and who are not suited to being hardcore practitioners. It's just not their thing. And this is part of appreciating diversity. 
So uh, um, where do these stories come from? How do they, gen where do they get generated? And um, I, I, I can't picture the, the established hierarchy creating new stories, um, although I guess I, it's just not how I think of it. And I, I sort of think of them as percolating up, but. Yeah, probably a lot of them percolated up. Um, that's a question I don't think we probably can answer that question very definitively because of limitations in how much we know about the historical circumstance. I mean, how much do we know about India in 250 BC? Yeah, a lot, but not a hell of a lot. <laughs> people didn't keep the same kinds of records that we do. Um, you know, this whole thing about percolating up, coming down, it's it's always a mixed bag. It's always a mixed bag, I think. Um, and it doesn't, in the long run, doesn't matter. We have the records of all of these stories that eventually came to be written down uh, in the Apadana and in the Jatakas. And in a certain sense, how the texts we have got to be there. It's interesting, but we'll probably never be able to answer that question definitively. And to us, it doesn't matter so much because we have them already. Now, how are, how are stories being generated for the future? Well, um, I think part of it is the kind of process in which some of us go, go search for more stories and um, become interested in those stories and start to write and tell about them. And now, after today, a lot more of you will know stories that previously were only known but in Sri Lanka and Thailand because they weren't translated into English until very recently. And then you will incorporate them somehow. And they will get incorporated into Buddhist teaching. And it's, an, it's a you know, completely interdependent, ongoing, unfolding process. Now, one thing I want to say about the monastic lay division is that as I read the Pali Suttas, from its very beginnings, the Buddha recognized and emphasized the fourfold Sangha. The fourfold Sangha consists of monks, nuns, lay men, lay women. And the, when the Sangha is defined, it's always defined as having these four elements within it which is very important for the long term. This is really important. In the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the story of the Buddha's last days, one of the reasons that he is willing to give up his life force is because, as he says it, and as Mara also points out to him in the text, he now has disciples in all four segments of the Sangha who are fully capable of transmitting the Dharma. He has not just monks who are fully capable of transmitting the Dharma, he has nuns, lay men, and lay women. And he had made it a condition that he would not attain parinirvana, in other words, he wouldn't die until he had accomplished that. At least as the Mahaparinibbana Sutta tells it, he had made it a condition. I will not let go of my life force until I have fully competent disciples in all four orders of the Sangha. That's very, very important for us because for one thing, the Buddha, it seems to me, always presupposed a nun's Sangha. Uh, this one story that's so popular about how he wouldn't let, Mah we'll go into it later, Mahapajapati ordained, that 
clearly is some kind of interpolation into the text. It's not, it's not, it just can't be, because it's so illogical to the rest of the canon. It can't be the original story. But also that lay disciples were competent. And I think that's very, very important for us, that there can be competent lay disciples. Now, I think to be a competent lay disciple, you have to have a lot of renunciation. There are things that you're not going to do if you're going to be a full-time competent Buddhist. Um, you probably, you know, there are a lot of things you're, you're not going to do, but uh, it's not impossible. So, um, percolating up, percolating down, a lot of religion, a lot of good religion percolates up. Um, that's always been the case. So let's see, where should we go from here? I want to um, give the cast of characters of people we're going to be um, talking about today. Uh, The list of people, the um, list of people that we'll talk about, Queen Maya, the mother of the Buddha, Mahaprajapati, uh, his foster mother and the founder of the nun's order. Um, Yasodhara, Yasodhara, his wife. Uh, Sujata, the woman who, the girl who gave him. Is that, should I stop? Okay. Um, Sujata, the the girl, young woman who gave him the meal he ate just before sitting under the Bodhi tree. Um, The earth goddess, who appeared during the Enlightenment narrative, and great female disciples. Now, by the way, the narratives about his Enlightenment are all probably, I mean, the the Battle of Mara and all of that, it's probably things that were put into the story later, but for our purposes it doesn't matter. So um, let's do the minor characters first. Queen Maya is the Buddha's mother. And about that whole episode, as you know, there are very elaborate stories about the Buddha's conception. Um, One of the things that's been pointed out, and it's quite interesting, is that supposedly Buddha and his wife, we should say, Gautama, Siddhartha, and his wife got married when they were 16. That's the traditional. They got married when they were 16. They didn't have a kid till they were 29. <laughs> so there must have been something going on there, like infertility. And one commentator, you know, this whole episode about the Buddha as a deadbeat dad uh, this causes, causes a lot of discomfort for many contemporary people. It causes a tremendous amount of discomfort of how could he, you know, how could he have done that? But one of the commentators have, has said that, and this is actually true in terms of what we know about Indian households of the day, uh, this, was a, this was a wealthy, multi-generational family. The families were multi-generational, period. 
So once you had produced the patrilineal heir, that's what was important. And, you know, the, the Buddha hung around long enough, or Siddhartha, we should say, until he's enlightened. Siddhartha did stick with it until finally the patrilineal heir was produced. That he could well have, and they could both have realized what needs to be done has been done. And the, the child and the f- wife do not suffer economically because he leaves them behind. They are well taken care of in a wealthy, multi-generational family. And that, I think, is really important for us to understand where the economic situation is so different and where men leaving families is often very devastating to the children and the women. You know, so many families in poverty in our country are headed by young women, women who had children very young, don't have an education and can't really support economically. But that was, at least that was not the case for Siddhartha, that he was not subjecting his wife and son to economic deprivation by fulfilling his heart's desire to leave home and pursue a full-time spiritual life. The emotional, that's another story. And that does come into the later stories I'll be telling later today. So, um, you know, the conception of Buddha, of Siddhartha rather, was an important occasion. Uh, Queen Maya, these stories are all later, but Queen Maya had dreams. um, Dreams of a white elephant entering her womb. And white elephants are very auspicious in ancient India. One of the most generous things you could do was give someone a a white elephant, which didn't didn't mean what it means to us, (laughs) that the white elephants are rare and um, they're very, very auspicious. And so uh, we have, you know, all the stories that you have about Jesus or Muhammad or Krishna the unusual conception, the painless pregnancy, (laughs) the painless childbirth, except that the Buddha is supposed to have come out of her left side. So I always say one wonders why she died seven days later, or one doesn't wonder why she died seven days later if he in fact did uh, emerge from her left side. Um, And... No, the stories are that she did die. That's very common in the literature, that she died seven days after his birth. Uh, Why did she, why was this her life story? It became an overarching, later on people made it into a much bigger deal, that it's part of the life plan of every Buddha. And people began to say this one story is archetypal in a different sense, that it becomes the life plan for every Buddha is going to live exactly the same lifestyle. So every Buddha will have a mother who dies young, uh, dies after seven days. Um, That she couldn't bear the joy of having given birth to the Bodhisattva. In other words, she was so overwhelmed with presuming she knew ahead of time, of course. um, Or that uh, it would be improper for her to ever have sex again. That's something, one, you know, why she died so soon. Or that it would be improper 
for the womb that bore the future Buddha to ever be inhabited by anyone else. So you can kind of take your pick. Um, All of them, of course, are later interpolations that presuppose people recognized that this was an extraordinary child the moment he was conceived, the moment he was born. And I doubt that his mother or foster mother always felt that way about him. Uh, it is said always that she was immediately reborn in Triatrimsha heaven. Does anybody want the spelling of that? Triatrimsha heaven. Which is not, it's one of the heavens of the 33 gods. It's one of the, it's still in the, it's still in the, in the desire realm. As you know from ancient Buddhist cosmology, uh, you have the three realms, which are the desire realm, the form realm, and the formless realm. And all samsaric rebirths, including those of high gods, are still within the desire realm. So this is not a high rebirth. It's still in the desire realm, one of the 33 heavens of the uh, beings who are born into long-lived, pleasant lives. And then we don't, for the most part, we never hear about her again. She's reborn into Triatrimsha heaven, pleasant, long-lived. It's not a pure land. Uh, she's not born into a realm from which enlightenment is reassured. In fact, the statement is that all beings born into any of the, of the uh, six realms within the desire realm will be reborn in lower existences and we'll have to go through samsara over and over and over. So um, that's kind of where at one point we leave the story. However, there's a very interesting story about the origins of the Abhidhamma, which some of you may know. Um, The Abhidhamma is quite a bit later in its composition than either Vinaya or Sutta. There are three, three... baskets to the polytext, the Vinaya, the Sutta, Abhidhamma. Abhidhamma is quite a bit later. Um, it was, you know, not, not of the same antiquity. And so people had to ask where it came from and to justify its origins. And in some ways, this is the first story about newer texts that had to be somehow incorporated into legitimate Buddhist canon much older than the stories about Mahayana sutras. That's like a second level of new text that people had to figure out what to do with. But the the Abhidharma was early enough that people could say, oh, this is really Buddha Vachana, even though it really isn't. How did it get to be Buddha Vachana? The story, Buddha Vachana means the speech of the Buddha, things the Buddha actually said, which if you're going to be kind of a Buddhist fundamentalist. You'll only accept things the Buddha actually said as uh, worth following. How is it that um, Abhidhamma is the speech of the Buddha? One rainy season, you know, the Buddha spent, what, 45 rainy seasons, and he often went off by himself during the rainy season, and the disciples didn't know where he was. Uh, One rainy season he's supposed to have spent by himself in the forest with elephants and animals, which is how he learned how to to communicate with elephants. 
so that when Devadatta sent that mad elephant to stampede him down, he knew how to communicate with the elephant, and that's why the elephant just stopped dead in its tracks and didn't attack him any further. But in another rainy season, he went to Chayatrimsha heaven to teach his mother. What did he teach her? The Abhidhamma. (laughs) The Abhidhamma, the part of, you know, that even, even fairly intellectual people quake at having to learn Abhidhamma. But that's what he went to, Triatrimsha heaven, to teach his mother. And it's said that um, then somehow every night he would come down and teach Sariputra, which is how it got into the human realm. But he taught it to his mother first. And it is a result of her hearing the Abhidhamma in Triatrimsha heaven. She attained stream winner status. Because she had died as a completely samsaric person. She wasn't a Buddhist. She had never heard her son preach. So she attained stream winner status, which you know is the lowest of the four orders of enlightened beings, stream winners, uh, non, once returners, non-returners, arhats. So stream winners will be reborn in, or will be re- become enlightened in seven more lifetimes in early Buddhist lore. And it is said that one of the reasons this story was important and needed to be told was that it came to be felt that the Buddha, after he became the Buddha, needed to be able to, quote-unquote, save or enlighten all of his immediate family. His father became a lay convert. His foster mother was the founder of the nun's order. And most stories say that his wife eventually became a nun and an arhat and a fully enlightened being. But since his mother was already dead, how was he going to do that? Well, he went to Triatrimsha heaven, taught her Abhidhamma. She became a stream winner. And though we never hear any future story, there may be stories, but I've never heard stories about how she was eventually reborn and got from stream winner to Arhat. Never, never heard such a story. There may well be such stories, but I don't know them. Uh, There are a few other stories about her. um, Oh, by the way, um, some it's not. It's pretty common in even in Tibetan Buddhism. People believe literally that the Buddha did ascend to Triatrimsha heaven during that rainy season, and there are many, many portrayals of the Buddha ascending a very long set of stairs which is Triatrimsha heaven. And some of the, one of the stupa styles for Tibetan stupas has the Buddha at the top of that long staircase, at the top of the stupa coming down the staircase. And um, the stupa at Mindraling Monastery in India, which is the monastery my teacher uh, is head of the lineage for, you wouldn't quite say abbot. She's, she's the, the head of that group. But their stupa is of the Buddha descending from Triatrimsha heaven. And there's also a story about a nun who wanted to be the first to greet the Buddha when he came down from Triatrimsha heaven and the magical devices she employed to get there. Anyway, to go back to the other stories I was going to tell about um, the Buddha's mother, 
There is a story in the Tibetan tradition that though she was in Triatrimsha heaven, she, when she saw the Buddha, the Siddhartha still, almost dead from his fasting extremes, she came down and started weeping over his just about dead body. And that or actually, uh, he appeared to be dead, and her weeping and mourning over his corpse revived him. And also, this is a story um, that I find quite amazing, that uh, she also came down to mourn when he died for good after the Parinirvana. And uh, he sat up in his coffin at that point and told her not to mourn because the death is the fate of all component conditioned things, including the body of a Buddha. So... um, while if we have a prejudice against stories and we have a prejudice against miracles, we'll find these stories pretty preposterous. I suggest um, if we can appreciate science fiction, which many of us can, we can appreciate these stories. I think this is one of the ways to understand all the miracle stories that come into the Buddhist canon as we go through Buddhist history of Buddhist narratives and legends. They were entertainment at the time, and they were the equivalent of science fiction. They're not, you know, that, that just as science fiction is quite relevant to understanding our culture and our fantasies and our hopes and our dreams, that's the way to understand the clearly not literal elements in so many Buddhist narratives throughout the ages. So I think it's a very helpful way to understand them. When I first presented this at Lotus Garden, the student body was very divided. Some of the more scientific people said, that's a great way to understand all these stories. The more pious people were horrified that I dared use the word fiction to describe anything in any Buddhist scripture. That if it's in a Buddhist scripture, it can't be fiction. So, and there were a few people who, you know, wouldn't, they wouldn't come to any more talks I gave because I was such a heretic that I would talk about fiction in Buddhist narratives. So, you know, what are you going to do? Anyway, you know, this is, she came down. Uh, to mourn because he had died, and the Buddha, being a good Buddhist teacher, sat up and said, "Don't you? Why don't you get it? Everything, every, even the body of a Buddha dies." I'll take that question. You need the microphone. No, you need the microphone because it's being recorded for the in, for being put on the web. Well, you put your hand up, so I decided to take yours. We have a dead microphone. (laughs) This happens at Lotus Garden all the time, too. Which is why I'm so very used to waiting for the microphones to work.
My question is, is about how to take the stories, and I don't see that they're any different than the stories of uh, Jesus' no, resurrection and all that. So it's just, it's teaching stories. It's teaching stories. And it's teaching have... stories. That if, the problem is that we have such a strong bias towards fact, and if the story isn't literally true, it's worthless. That, takes, that destroys a lot of people's faith. And, you know, in our culture, with such a strong overlay of fundamentalist Christianity, that's the dividing line for a lot of people. You take the story literally, you're a Christian. If you won't take it literally, you are not Christian, and therefore you are basically booted out. Um, And there's no appreciation for teaching story as teaching rather than as, in other words, there's so little appreciation of the difference between history and story. A story is an art form. It's not a fact. I paused there because I knew your question was probably going to be about my science fiction comment. Um, you know, fiction, there's no problem. Fiction is true. There's no problem with fiction. Why else would we continue to write novels if there was a problem with fiction? Fiction is true, it's just not empirical. Or another way of saying this is we've gotten very misled in the fact that we think the only truth is factual. So I remember many years ago, I read an article where they're interviewing a Hindu gentleman, I don't remember the scholar or not, and he commented that, you know, a lot of the Hindu myths and stuff, it says, we don't care whether they're true or not. It's the, you know, like you were saying, the, the value of the story. And it seems like, is that a real Western thing, that Westerners just think in that terms, or in Asians they'd actually It's don't? post-European enlightenment. It's European enlightenment with the discovery of scientific method and the, the, the fact that scientific method works very well for certain things. From that, the leap was made that anything that didn't work that way was without value. And, you know, that's when people started to um, started to really study, no, not right away, but that led to critical biblical scholarship where people began to discover how the Gospels were put together from many sources and how the Hebrew Bible was put together from many sources. And started to, you know, eventually led to the notion of evolution. And that's when people started to get so polarized about the Bible being factually correct. Before that, people didn't care whether the Bible was factually correct or not. In fact, in medieval methods of interpreting scripture, there were said to be four levels of meaning in scripture, the first of which was the literal, and that was basically confined to place names and where was Bethlehem in relationship to Jerusalem? And it was not at all about the question, did Jesus literally rise from the dead? And the literal level was considered to be unimportant. Things changed a lot. And this is something that people just don't understand. But it's an example of how our ideas of what is true and valuable are also a result of interdependent co-arising. The ideas about what we hold absolutely, this is the way things are. Our worldview is not 
you know, the only worldview there ever has been or the only worldview there ever will be. It's a product of, in, of interdependence. And, you know, Buddhist teachings about interdependence are very, very helpful, but they're also, they undercut any notion that anything is absolutely, any conceptual system is absolutely true for all time. You know, the chemistry we learned in high school, they don't even have the same number of elements in the periodic chart anymore. (laughs) So much for unchanging science. (laughs) Now, I want to go on, um, and this is a story about Queen Maya that I found last year when I was, I've, I've been studying Mahayana Sutras, and I found this story in the Avatamsaka Sutra, um, which is a really huge sutra. It's about 1,600 pages long. And this is the only place in Buddhist literature where I found any further development of the story of Queen Maya. The story of the Avatamsaka Sutra was quite a late Mahayana Sutra. Uh, is about a young man who is a spiritual seeker. He's very definitely a pilgrim, a spiritual seeker. And the story is about how he seeks, he goes from one Kalyanamitra to another, Kalyanamitra, spiritual friend. Uh, And he has 25, there are 25 spiritual friends or Kalyanamitras he has in his spiritual quest. The most important of them and the one who guides them along is Bodhisattva Manjushri. But he, he has these 25 spiritual teachers. About half of them are women. Not all of them are Buddhists. Some of them are non-Buddhist spiritual teachers of the day. A few of them are nuns. A lot of them are lay people. And there's a, a kind of a progression as he goes uh, along through this quest. And um, in the, the Avatamsaka Sutta, Queen Maya reappears as one of the Kalyanamitras that uh, this, young spirit, this young man who's the spiritual seeker, one of the Kalyanamitras that he meets. And she's, in fact, the second most important Kalyanamitra in the whole text second only to Manjushri. And uh, it is said about her that um, she has fully, she has fully uh, perfected or understood Dharmakaya, the Dharma body of the Buddha, three kaya theory, three bodies of the Buddha, which is a Mahayana, one of the genuine Mahayana innovations, is fully in place by the time this sutra is written. And so, Queen Maya has fully realized the Dharma body of the Buddha, which is the abstract cosmic principle of Buddhahood that is the source of a historical Buddha or the source of any teacher. So a teacher can be a teacher only because they have some connection with uh, the truthfulness of Dharma. And the truthfulness of Dharma is the Buddha's real body or his most abstract and most important body. His physical form body is much less important. She has fully tapped into that truth body of the Buddha. Um, She is, she therefore can manifest an infinite number of form bodies, 
Because in Mahayana theory, if you truly tap into the truth body of the Buddha, then you can send out emanations. And she is the mother of all Buddhas of the past, present, and future. So she's very much elevated in this sutra as the mother of all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, actually, of the past, present, and future. Um, she is, as I said, the second most important Kalyanamitra in the whole text. And it's very interesting that the Kalyanamitra, that in the story, uh, the early Kalyanamitras that he meets aren't too profound. I'm losing this one all the time. The early Kalyanamitras that he meets aren't too impressive and aren't too profound. But as you go through the story, they have more and more profound teachings to give. So the Kalyanamitra that he meets and interacts with just before Queen Maya is, guess who, Yashodara, the wife of the Buddha, who is also very highly elevated. She's the fifth most important spiritual friend in this whole sequence of 25 teachers that he works with. And Yasodara is the one who sends him. She says, I've taught you all I can teach you. Next, you need to go to Queen Maya. So he, she goes to, to her. He goes to her. It's very interesting that in this text, it's a male seeker, a male spiritual disciple, who repeatedly goes to female teachers. As I said, about half the teachers in this text are women. Some of them nuns, one is a prostitute, laywomen, queens. Uh, but it's very interesting that about half the spiritual teachers in that narrative are women, which says something that I, a point I, is really a imp very important point of this whole program. The notion that Buddhism was unrelievedly male-dominated in the past is completely wrong. Gender has always been contested in Buddhism. There have always been much evidence of the fact that people questioned and um, totally made fun of male dominance in Buddhism. So what you often hear from Asians, oh, we wouldn't have any of these issues like nun's ordination if it weren't for Western feminists. Totally untrue. It's just totally untrue, and I really get tired of Asians calling me a colonialist because I talk about the importance of gender equity in Buddhism. It's always been talked about in Buddhism. There, it's never been the only voice, but that voice has always been there. How dare you say this is just Western feminists who care about equality and equity in Buddhism? That's such a trivialization and denigration of Buddhism. So about half the Kalyanamitras are women, Yasodara and Maya are both important Kalyanamitras. Interestingly enough, Mahaprajapati, the founder of the nun's order, does not come into this text at all. And part of the reason for this is that one of the agendas of this text is to give positive evaluation to the practice of wealthy lay Buddhists. Uh, you know, they're very strong. It's okay to be wealthy. It's, as long as you're generous, it's okay to be wealthy. You don't have to be a world renouncer. Uh, you can be a very positive Buddhist as a wealthy lay person. And so Mahaprajapati and 
doesn't come into the text at all. Yes, question back there. Microphone. You can tell how used to this I am. Just a quick question. Where did the Avitam Sakya Sutta come from? When and where? It's a fairly late Mahayana Sutra, composed in India. Um, all the Mahayana Sutras were composed in India, in Sanskrit. Though uh, the, Sanskrit, the Sanskrit texts of many of them were lost when Buddhism was exterminated in India. And I, because it's such a large, it's 16, the full text is 1,600 pages long in small font. So it's a very, very big book. And therefore, I think, to me, it has to be something that was composed over a fairly long period of time. And, you know, somebody would have another good story about another Kalyanamitra, and it would get added in until finally the text was codified with 25 Kalyanamitras. And I would date it. I'm not great at dating Sanskrit texts, you know, don't, don't hold me to that, but I would date it as 3rd or 4th century A.D., whereas the earliest Mahayana sutras date from about 100 B.C. or B.C.E. The Prajnaparamita literature is among the earliest of the Mahayana literature. And by the way, the dates of the Buddha that I think work best are not the 563 to 483. I think that's about 100 years too early. I accept scholarship, which places the dates of the Buddha about 100 years later. So he would have died not in 483 BCE, but more like 400 or 380. And that date is come to because of the amount of... We know Ashoka's dates... And it's said that there was a certain amount, five generations between Ashoka, the Buddha and Ashoka. So the traditionally given dates, it's just too long a period of time for five generations. This is a result of Japanese scholars working with the texts and coming up with these dates. And while, you know, in the long run it doesn't matter, because even if none of the stories about the Buddha were, had anything of value in them at all, nevertheless his Dharma body continues to be relevant. In other words, the body of the teachings, which has always been said to be his most important body or his most important manifestation, that continues to be relevant. So there is a level on which the story isn't important, but on the other hand, there's a level at which we can really learn a lot from stories. One of the wonderful things about Buddhist teaching is that it's always a both-and Never either or. Form and emptiness are both important. Story and history are both important. Stories can be uh, totally not empirically true and still relevant, but if you don't find them relevant, that's okay too. Doesn't matter. As long as you get the point. Um, so that's all I have about Queen Maya. I don't have any more than that. Are there any possible remaining questions about Queen Maya? It's very interesting, isn't it, that both about Jesus and the Buddha, it's important to believers that his mother never had another child. 
So in that sutta, it reveals that Queen Maya was the second most important Kalyanamita. Does it go into any of the story of what the interchange between them was? About what? What the interchange oh, was. Oh, yeah, there's a, long, there's a long dialogue in there. It's, it's um, not hugely interesting, which is why I don't have it in my notes. Okay. But if you, you, know, you can easily get a hold of a copy of the Avatamsaka Sutra. Um, we say sutra for the Mahayana ones because they're in Sanskrit, and sutta is the Pali word, sutra mm-hmm. is the Sanskrit word. It's like nibbana and nirvana. Mm-hmm. Um, do you so, and you can get a hold of a copy of it and, and read the dialogue easily yourself. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's a, published by Shambhala Pubs. It's easily available. Do you have a, a takeaway from his interactions with the women in this, this progression uh, with this I, uh, I don't have that. Uh, I, I went back this morning and looked at my teaching notes from the Avatamsaka Sutta, and there were so many other points I had to make about that sutta in an hour and a half talk that I did not do. This is the first woman teacher he had. This is the second. This is the third, etc. Um, but there are a lot of important women teachers in that sutra which I think tells us something about, you know, 3rd, 4th centuries A.D., when, Buddha, when this text was being collected and composed, about what people thought about male dominance in, in Buddhism. Um, lots of times our impressions of how male-dominant Buddhism is come from the selection of, West, the, the selection of Western scholars. It's really interesting. There's a very short passage in, in the uh, Mahaparinibbana Sutta. It's about six lines long. And it comes right at, you know what I'm talking about. It comes right at the end of the, the Buddha is on his deathbed already. And he's only going to say about five minutes more worth of talking. And this thing is inserted into the text where Ananda says, Lord, what, would you, what should we do about women? You know, and the Buddha's on his deathbed. They've had 45 years. <laughs> I'm sure that the, one of the last things Ananda asked about was, what do we do about women? And Buddha basically said, ignore them. And, and Ananda says, but what if they speak to us? And uh, the Buddha says something again. Um, about, I can't remember the exact sequence, and I'm not going to go back in my notes and look. But anyway, there's three questions. And the Buddha ends by saying, be mindful. If you have to encounter women, be mindful. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's literally this long. That excerpt, which I'm absolutely positive is a later interpolation into the text, is pulled out by so many Western anthologies of the teachings of the Buddha. And the rest of the sutta is ignored. But that little section is pulled out and that has happened a lot of times. Western, you know, Western scholars are, of religion in particular are very androcentric. They think men are normal human beings and women are some kind of an exception and weird and, you know, footnotes. And that's part of the reason why, I mean, not that there isn't a lot of patriarchy in Buddhism, but it's been made worse by Western scholars and what Western scholars have decided to pull out of the texts and put into anthologies, which are then taught to undergraduates who will never learn much of anything about Buddhism 
apart from what's in their little anthology of the teachings of the Buddha. That anthology is not going to include from the same text when the Buddha said, I will not give up my life force, I will not relinquish my life until I have accomplished disciples who are monks, who are nuns, who are laymen, who are laywomen. That text they don't bother to pull out. So, you know, you have to always, this is interdependence. Everything is interdependence, the interdependent causes and conditions, because Western scholars are so androcentric that conditions what they pull out of Buddhist texts to put into anthologies, which then conditions another generation of people. And then it goes to Asia, and they say, oh, it's only Western feminists who care about gender equity in Buddhism, whereas I put it in one of my papers. You know, Mahapajapati said no. She wouldn't take no for an answer a long time ago. And ever since then, Buddhist women have been saying no, and men, Buddhist men have been saying no to male dominance. Uh, yes? I'm wondering if there's a story about the, the name of, the, of Maya, because in Advaita, it's the, it's the word for illusion. Right. I know of no story explaining that um, that name, Queen Maya. Um, and there are some real questions. Contemporary Hindus are really questioning whether illusion is an accurate translation for Maya. Uh, illusion, you know, this whole thing that India thinks the empirical world is illusory, it's much more that the, that the empirical world is interdependent, that the seer and the seen are interdependent, and they co-create each other. That's much more the Indian view. Not That often our impressions of things are illusory because, because of our own minds, but not because um, they're ghosts. I'll say more about this tomorrow. I'll say more about this tomorrow. Yes, what, a question over there? Hi. Um, it, it's well, pretty well accepted that Jesus' family was poor. It's pretty well accepted that Buddha's family was uh, of a kingdom, a, a, he was a prince. Have you heard any other stories related to that? I've been told several times, or heard through, and I can't give you the source, but several times, um, that there were no princely kingdoms in that part of Nepal at the time that there could you know on and well, on so again maybe someone just trying to yeah no the, the, he was born in an, what we would call an upper class family is probably accurate that his father was a king maybe more like a mayor of a small town uh, the you know the it's exaggerated just you know just like it's exaggerated that Jesus when he was twelve could go to the temple and dispute with now we lost the funny thing on the end of this oh I didn't see that one. That'll help it stay yeah. on for sure. Thank you. Now can we put that funny little thing on the tip of this?
That's not so hard, but I kept pulling it off with my shawl. Um, so it, it's, you know, for some reason, well, part of, the, part of it is that in India and in Buddhism in general, wealth is okay as long as you're generous. It's not a problem to be wealthy. It's a problem to be stingy. And that's be- deeply widespread in Buddhism. Um, wealth is, you know, if you're too literal about karma, wealth is a sign that you've done things right in your previous lives. So that's okay. But if you're not generous when you do have wealth, then you're going to not do so well in your future lives. And that, that ethic is deeply, deeply embedded in Asian Buddhism. It explains, for example, why in Taiwan the nuns are doing so well. In Taiwan, there are about six, seven times more nuns than monks, and they have very beautiful nunneries, very wonderful places. They get PhDs in the West. They're extremely well-supported. Why is this? It's because women don't have the same opportunities in the secular economy that men do. So men are not becoming monks, but women who don't want to be in a conventional male-dominated marriage and who do want an education become nuns because that's their way to have an independent life. And lay people, wealthy lay people, still want to accrue merit by donating to religious institutions. So they donate generously. And um, it's one of those very interesting turns in the modern world. So there's no, no problem with the Buddha being wealthy in Buddhist value systems because wealth can be something that's used well. There's no, and you know, this whole thing about hoarding and never having enough, that's considered so trivial in Buddhism. It's just so, so stupid to hoard wealth and to, um, you know, be opposed to paying 1% more taxes because, <laughs> because we don't want to support the undeserving poor. You know, you should be grateful you have an opportunity to earn merit. (laughs) No, that's a very strong ethic in Buddhism. You should be very grateful that you have an opportunity to earn merit. Because without someone to be generous to, you would have no ability to improve your your situation, your lot. You know, you just, it's very important. Okay, I want to go through the other minor characters. Um... There's only two of the minor characters left, and they won't take a lot of time. Uh, Sujata, Sujata, Sujata means well-born, and it's still used as a given name. I, I have a, I haven't seen her for a long time, but I have a friend who was born in a Hindu family whose name is Sujata, means well-born, and that's the the woman or young woman who came to the tree where the Buddha had sat down, or Siddhartha rather had sat down. And she, and she had she had a dish of I think it, what we'd call it kheer today, of rice milk that she was going to offer to the tree spirit. Either we don't know different stories whether it was because she wanted to conceive a son, or to give thanks for having had a, just had, having had a, a son. But um, he was she she gave the 
rice gruel to him, to Siddhartha, because either because she thought he was the tree spirit, that was how emaciated he looked, <laughs> or because she thought, this guy really needs it. <laughs> so she gave him the rice milk. He ate it, regained his strength, um, you know, and then had enough strength to sit under the Bodhi tree. It is said in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta in particular, it is said that the two meals... So one of, the, one of the stories you hear all the time in the lives of the Buddha is how he would go somewhere and wealthy lay people would come and say, can we please feed you lunch tomorrow and all of your monks? And that was a great honor. And they would immediately go home and start preparing food like crazy. And the next day when the Buddha and the monks came to have lunch, these wealthy, important people would, be, would serve. And it was a great honor to be able to serve and to you know, take care of these people. So the meals, the two meals that provide, and people did that because it was a way of accruing merit. The two meals that earned their donor the most merit were the meal that Sujita gave the Buddha just before his enlightenment experience and his last meal, which is the one that if you read the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the last meal literally poisoned him and caused his death. But that was a meal of great merit because his first meal as just about to be enlightened, his last meal before he, was, he died. And that story is put in, I think, because it is important. Buddha thought it was very important that the person who gave him that last meal not be blamed for causing his death. And that's explicitly said in the sutta, that I don't want people thinking that, that you should blame this person for causing the death of the Tathagata. That meal was of great merit that he provided. And uh, the causes and conditions were such that he was about to die. And that just happened to be, you know, the final meal. Um, there's been controversy ever since that story about whether it was mushrooms or pork. And as I said the other night, I don't think it matters. I don't really care. Uh, some people have tremendous investment in proving that the Buddha was a vegetarian, and they're horrified. But the word in Pali, nobody's been able to figure out what it really means. Um, it is said of Sujata that she had been Siddhartha's mother, uh, in the, his previous 500 lives. So they had a karmic connection. Now that's all later stories, of course. And that he promises her she will become enlightened. Though there are no stories that I have ever run into about her meeting the Buddha later in his life or about her becoming enlightened in a later life. I have never found such stories. Doesn't mean they don't exist. What this story does show us that's very important about the role of women in ancient Buddhism is that women rather than men controlled the food resources of the household. Men did not, you know, the monks would go by with their begging bowls, and they still do this in Sri Lankan, in, in Theravada countries. The monks would go by with their begging bowls, and the women would be standing there waiting to put food in their bowls. It was women. And so women, the women that monks like are generous lay women, for obvious reasons. Monks don't like nuns so much. 
but they like generous, pious lay women because, you know, that continues the maternal role, the caregiving role, the caretaking role, and it means they have food to eat that day. But lay women were absolutely essential to the survival of Buddhism and in the economy of early Buddhism. Um, And I think that accounts in part for the ambivalence towards nuns that we find in a lot of Buddhist literature. In a lot of Buddhist literature, nuns are accepted, but not the way monks are. It's very sad, but it's very true. Then the last... um, Minor character I want to talk about is the earth goddess. Um, Clearly comes from the time when stories about Mara's testing of the Buddha came into the narrative. There's no such story. Um, There is, by the way, a wonderful book. uh, I think it's by Nanamoli. Do people know that book? What's the name of it? The one about the life of the Buddha. There's a wonderful, wonderful book in which someone put together in a continuous narrative all of the stories about the life of the Buddha that are actually in the Pali Suttas. And it's very, very different from Ashvagosa's epic, which is the one where even Theravadins have taken their version of the narrative of the Buddha's life from Ashvagosa, not from the Pali Canon. I can look it up during the lunch break. I can look it up on my computer. It's very, very worth reading because it will give you quite a different picture of the life of the Buddha. But it's not a continuous narrative. There's no continuous narrative of the life of the Buddha in the Pali sources. This is put together very painstakingly by someone who really, really knew, knows the Pali materials. Um... So this whole story about Mara's uh, testing of the Buddha or whatever you want to call it, the battle between Siddhartha and the Buddha beginning the night of his enlightenment, that's all a story that was added later. Um, But the story about the earth goddess, which I dearly love, is the story that at a certain point in that narrative about Mara testing the Buddha, Mara basically said to Buddha, you don't deserve to be sitting on this Vajrasana, the the indestructible seat at the Bodhi tree. You don't deserve to be sitting there. You have no merit. And you have no one who will stand up for you. Whereas I deserve to be sitting there because I have patronized my army and they all are loyal to me and they all revere me and they all regard me very highly. And then he you know, sort of gestured to his followers and they all said the equivalent of yay Mara you know he's very generous he's very good to us and Buddha had no one there was no one there to say yay Buddha so he he put his right his left hand down and touched the earth which is the source of mudra that is very, very famous in many forms of Buddhism. It's certainly very famous in Tibetan Buddhism. If you go to Tibetan shops and look at statues, mudra, uh, rupas of the Buddha, he will very often be in what's, what's called earth-touching mudra. He's cross-legged, and this hand is down this way, touching just at his knee. The other one is in meditation posture. So he touched the earth, and upon touching the earth, the energy of earth rose up in an anthropomorphic form 
and um, took her hair and wrung out her hair of all the water that was in it. Why was there so much water on earth? Because all of the offerings Siddhartha had made in all of his previous lives by transferring merit, the transfer of merit was done by pouring water on the earth. So all of this, um, this collective merit was now uh, personified or symbolized in the water in the goddess's hair. And she took her hair and wrung out all the water from her hair, which swept Mara's hordes away. And that's one of the last episodes in, the, uh, in this very, very dramatic uh, temptation of Siddhartha by Mara. Um, So, you know, we never, except for that one incident, we never hear from the story again. The story is quite common in Theravada contexts. And there are, because there's so little room in, in Theravada iconography for positive feminine statues, the statue of the earth goddess has become a rupa that has been used. And I have two rupas in my own personal collection of uh, the earth goddess wringing out her hair. One of them is supposed to be a 17th century. It's definitely Thai, you can tell by the artwork, but it's supposed to be a 17th century re uh, representation. And when I was in Thailand, um, because, people, you know, because everywhere I go, people know that I'm this uh, you know, outrageous Buddhist feminist, uh, <laughs> they were very eager to take me to see representations of the earth goddess in parks and places like that so that I would know that they did have some really positive fe feminine imagery and stories about women uh, in the life of the Buddha. Um, you know, this story, I think, is a wonderful addition to stories about Buddhist women who intervene at crucial times in crucial ways. And while this is not, you know, literally what happened at all, it's a much later story, According to the story, most of us read and appreciate. Without her, one wonders, would the Buddha's enlightenment have been thwarted? You know, I mean, she, she kind of gave it to Mara, and it was a she who did it. Um, so at this point, I think we can break for lunch. We have lots of material left because we're going to talk first about the Buddha's wife, and there's wildly different stories about her in the northern sources and the southern sources. They're very interesting. And then we'll talk about Mahaprajapati uh, at the end. So uh, we'll break for lunch. Um, did people bring lunches? Are you going out? What are you going to do? I need, I need a break. I can't interact all day. I need a break. So I'm going to go out for lunch, I think. Is that right? Because I just need to rest and chill. <laughs> Um, so an, an hour and a half? Well, I think an hour and a half would be good. Okay, so 1.30, 1.30 sharp. We'll have a very brief, maybe five or ten minutes of sitting to get back into the mood. Um, there's, there's a lot of material left we can discuss. I don't really have a huge stake in going through everything. I can tell the stories in a very abbreviated way or a very... Uh, the more the way I've been telling stories this morning, depending on how much time we have left. 
Um, so, do you have any formal way of ending a session? No. No, we just say <laughs> Okay, it's time for lunch. Okay. Do we go until five? Yeah, that's what the brochure says. I'm, you know, for my teacher, it's very important that when we're teaching or participating anywhere else, we follow the local customs. So I'm trying very hard to do that. We're all trying to accommodate each other, which is very nice. Yeah.